0: Now that we said all that shit, let's wow. turn the recording on.
1: Right. You know, I'm just, I'm just really excited for this cybernetics thing. You know, the scientific study of cyberbullying, what works, what doesn't, who deserves <laughs> it, and who to you know, leave alone. We're going to start with people who deserve it. Blue checks.
0: <laughs> and then really stay tuned for part two. I'm really looking forward to it, which is how to use cyborgs for the proletarian revolution.
2: That's That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) That's correct. Cybernetics is a field of study that just involves anything you can think of that has to do with the word cyber (laughs) or is a computer. <laughs> um, which That's is right. both, which is both like a, a funny joke, but and also like I think depending on how you define all the terms in that sentence, technically correct. So <laughs> there's an um, there's an amorphous nature to this field of study that I think is really rewarding to anybody who's familiar with something as seemingly nonsensical at first as dialectics, where it's like, oh, I'm caught in a recursive loop, but it's productive what's happening (laughs) (laughs) welcome to marxism and or cybernetics
1: (laughs) yeah i'm uh i'm very excited though it's gonna be an interesting time at the very least
2: yeah well uh, i suppose i should intro the show a little
3: bit (laughs)
2: bonus series from your three hosts here that i am very excited to present and i have been doing a lot of work to get ready this is the cybernetics and labor series a long and meandering walk through the garden of cybernetics and all of the various fruits and vegetables that it has to offer is this analogy holding up (laughs) uh
0: (laughs) well produces things to the farmer's market of ideology
2: that's correct (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to get into cybernetics for a few different reasons, Uh, most namely because I think it's something that particularly on the left and particularly, again, within union kind of discussions, discourse, whatever, has been left by the wayside when it could be an extremely valuable tool in our hands. It's something that you know uh before we get into it like cybernetics is ideologically it kind of doesn't have a charge it's something that can be wielded by business executives as readily as it could be wielded by the leaders of a communist party as easily as it could be exercised reflexively by a union of workers as easily as it could be used uh the common example is a single organism is like a cybernetic system and before we get too deep into the weeds right off the bat uh welcome to the show everybody my name is john
1: i'm dan and i'm lena
2: And we're an entirely listener-supported show, so if you enjoy content like this, we really appreciate your support on Patreon. It really does go a long way towards keeping the show going. If you want to learn more about this kind of stuff, hop into the Discord. If you are a patron and you don't have stickers yet, just message us on Patreon and we will get you your stickers as soon as we can. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or... Uh, write a a note about the show in the front page of uh, The Brain of the Firm by Stafford Beer.
0: Or or go and log into ChatGPT and get it to write you a macro that automatically writes us really great five-star reviews.
2: That's (laughs) right. That is... That is a systemic solution to a systemic (laughs) issue. Well, I am
0: nothing if not a structuralist.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and as long as we're doing structuralism, okay, so I'm going to dive right into it. Many of you listening to the show may have heard of Cybersyn, the famous cybernetic attempt at operating Chile's economy under the leadership of Salvador Allende back in the late 1960s. It's a fabulous story that many other podcasts and YouTubers have already done a wonderful job with, and I would encourage you to check any of them out if you're inclined to learn more about the story it fascinates me endlessly and it's one of the most compelling early attempts we've seen at technologically adept socialist planning in our world's history
0: and it even came with an incredibly cool star trek inspired command room
2: it was so cool it was so orange
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was extremely like 1971
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, is there, are there particular resources that you think are, are, uh, really good if people wanted to to check out the more like, uh, something specific?
2: I don't remember offhand which podcasts I listen to about Cybersyn. Um, but I do know that I see a new YouTube video pop up about it in my recommendations about once every three months. So, I mean, just go out there and check it out. I mean, I, I wish I did have like a, a great channel to give you or something, um, but I don't. So. <laughs> Maybe by the end
1: of this series, keep listening.
2: Yeah, keep listening. I will be there. There will be a lot of different YouTube links and stuff that people will be able to follow down the rabbit hole if they want to check it out. I'll try to make sure that that stuff ends up in the show notes. Um, but relevant to cyber sin, I have always kind of wished that we had more stories like that. Perhaps some that weren't cut tragically short by U.S. intervention, where we backed a fascist who led a military coup, leading to a military dictatorship. But there are some that we might find time for during this series uh, because the series itself is rather open-ended by the very nature of its topic and format. Uh, Some notable uh, instances of the use of cybernetics and socialist planning that we've seen are when the USSR made very good use of cybernetics for a time uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And it has also seen some successes in China. Uh, which I know considerably less about. And there are other examples from around the world of which I know less still. But because cybernetics is such a transferable form of analysis, because it works as well in the Communist Party as it does in the boardroom, I wondered if we shouldn't also try and find its values within the labor union and any other worker organization that you could think of. And right off the bat, it's important to note, I don't have any credentials, but also uh, pretty much ever cyber pretty much every cyberneticist throughout history was a specialist in something that just kind of up and said actually I'm a cybernetics person now so uh, <laughs>
1: real like it's like an autodidactic field in a lot of cases or
2: yes uh, you'll see that a lot of people who were innov- innovators in cybernetics you know they had good educations but they were like lifelong learners who kept moving from field to field and and broadening their their scope i, I as somebody who has you you know, attention issues and kind of a, a classic um, case of like you know ADHD brain. I find cybernetics really rewarding as a field that rewards breadth of knowledge in many cases, over depth of knowledge. So, you know, if you're a little familiar with mathematics, if you're a little familiar with zoology, if you're a little familiar with computing, that's going to help you more in cybernetics than if you're deeply familiar with one specific thing. Although that can be very useful as well.
0: Yeah, that, uh, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of overlap there between the field of cybernetics and the field of, like, systems engineering uh, and just systems theory more broadly, where it's like, where science is actually kind of, you have, like, science in the bourgeois Western world being forced by the march of the development of technology and complexity of various, you know, supply chains, logistical networks Mm -hmm. to recognize that, uh, you know, ideologically you may be predisposed to think of all of these different disciplines as separate and in their own little siloed boxes, but that that's not how reality works. And if you Mm -hmm. keep thinking about it that way, you're not going to be able to make these giant world spanning complex systems actually run.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, the more that we specialize and kind of create specific solutions within a specific framework for specific problems, the more it kind of heightens the walls of the box that that puts us in creatively in terms of coming up with solutions. And it's important to remember that science and engineering are creative disciplines as much mm-hmm. as they are what you would call like a, um, a research discipline or, or something more or formal. A, a and,
0: hard science uh, as opposed to the soft sciences. Well, and that, that's what's <laughs> fun about
2: cybernetics is they really encourage encouraged quote-unquote hard and soft science people to intermingle. And so social, you have social scientists talking to physicists, talking to computer engineers, and so on. And so because of the very nature of cybernetics being that kind of broad, sometimes ill-defined field uh, that comes with a healthy distrust of so-called professionalism in any case, I think I have a pass to bring you along as I dive down the rabbit hole of regulation, feedback, control, and systems thinking in general, starting with the grandfather of all this stuff – Norbert Wiener. But before we dive into Wiener too deeply, I just want to give a shout out to the great many other figures of cybernetics that I hope to cover either during this series or just eventually, in addition to Wiener, Ashby, and Beer, who I have specifically set out to cover in this series. All of that being set off um, from my interest in Brain of the Firm, which is Stafford Beer's uh, revolutionary management book. And if you want a chapter by chapter breakdown of it, I really recommend listening to General Intellect Unit they did a fabulous job with it. Um but these other figures of cybernetics that I would also like to acknowledge, uh especially Arturo Rosenbluth who as far as I can tell has equal claim to being the grandfather of cybernetics to Norbert Wiener. He's just much much less talked about in English language literature because he's from Mexico and I did look him up and there's tons of great Spanish language resources on him that's just going to be much more difficult for me to <laughs> make my way through than stuff for Wiener. And so I want to give him his due credit before we move on.
0: But- There's some like I, I gotta say, this field seems to attract a lot of names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I what I mean by that is like, you know, you're talking about Norbert Wiener and Stafford Beer. I'm like I'm like I'm. I feel like I'm gonna look up and find out that like Buckminster Fuller was also into cybernetics. <laughs> <and> John <laughs> Poindexter. And
2: yeah. They yeah, do all I have mean, pretty some, uh,
1: memorable names.
2: Yeah, I keep thinking, uh, especially the trio of Wiener, Ashby, and Beer. I'm like, oh, it sounds like a, a bonfire kind of, <laughs> yeah, or like a Crosby, Stills,
0: and Nash cover <laughs> yeah. act. Oh,
1: yeah. I, yeah, I thought it was like a, a, a Paul Simon and a Art Garfunkel song. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Wiener, Ashby, Beer, and Young. Yeah, uh- <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, but let's dive into Norbert Wiener, an extremely interesting man. So, um, well,
3: you see the picture drawing together. Now, I suppose one of the things that you people would like will be consolation. Gentlemen, there is no Santa Claus. If we want to live with the machine, we must understand the machine. We must not worship the machine. We must make a great many changes in the way we live with other people. people. We must revalue leisure. We must turn the great administrators of business, of industry, of politics into a state of mind where they will consider that the leisure of people is their business and is not none of their business. We shall have to do this unhampered by slogans which fit a previous state of society and don't fit the present. We shall have to do this unhampered by the creeping paralysis of secrecy, which is engulfing our government. Because secrecy simply means that we are unable to face situations as they are. The people who have to control situations are in no position to handle them. We shall have to realize that... While we may make the machines our gods and sacrifice men to machines, we do not have to do so. And if we do so, we deserve the punishment of idolaters. It's going to be a difficult time. If we can live through it and keep our head, and if we do not get annihilated by war of itself, and our other problems, there is a great chance of turning the machine to human advantage. But the machine itself has no particular favor for humanity.
2: That's from Norbert Wiener, uh, his speech, Men, Machines, and the World About Them, right around the 54-minute mark, which he gave in 1950, I believe addressing a crowd at Harvard.
1: I actually... uh, I. Uh, when I pulled the clip, it's actually closer to, like, the 48-minute mark.
2: Oh, okay, 48-minute mark. Gotcha.
1: Somewhere around there, but yeah.
0: What? So, like, there's a lot to, that's fascinating to me about this quote because, like, first off, the time that he's giving this, mm-hmm. I would love to know, like, how this was received <laughs> uh, because there's multiple aspects of this that in 1950, w- like – or even today, would be extremely unpopular with, for instance, the Harvard crowd. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, first off, decrying the secrecy of knowledge, which you're in 1950, you're at the very beginning of like the, the fully rabid McCarthyist stage of the... You know, that portion of the Red Scare and secrecy was just going through the roof. It became like, you know, your every citizen's patriotic duty to, you know, safeguard our national (laughs) secrets from the the communists. who are going to use them to destroy America and take away our freedoms.
2: Right. Absolutely. Well, and uh, in addition to that, I mean, you see echoes of Marx right in the oh, earliest yeah. part of this where he, he says, um, we shall have to do this unhampered by slogans which fit a previous state of society, indicating that he has this, m- maybe not a vulgar stagist, but essentially a stagist kind of conception of history where something, he doesn't explicitly say what, is determining the format of, you know, each society as it progresses through history.
0: In I also see so many shades of, like, an understanding whether, like, red or not or just, you know, like, spontaneous of the concept of commodity fetishism because there's so many parallels with what he's talking about with the way machines are viewed, uh, especially by the ruling class. But then, you know, because of that filtering down to everybody else via the ideological state apparatus, but, like— That obsession, you know, inherent to capitalism of this idea that commodities have inherent value, that value just comes from the sky and is not, in fact, purely a social relation that had no prior existence prior to arranging society in this economic means. And and I really appreciate that he gets to that point. The machine itself has no particular favor for humanity. Like, as somebody who went through, like, you know, engineering training and engineering college like that is not <laughs> the ideology that they teach you there is still very much a lot of like machine worship uh, within yep. the the stem uh, community Well, it's like techno
2: optimism, but Mm -hmm. what it really amounts to is it's just like you're just excited when a machine works, whether that machine is meant to get you to your destination or if it runs over you on its way to its destination. Either way, you're like, the machine worked. (laughs) Wonderful.
0: (laughs) Right, exactly. And just like there's like, oh, this thing is good because it's valuable. And the thing that they're pointing at is like a Tomahawk missile. And it's like, No, <laughs> first off, that value is not inherent. And second off, you have now substituted exchange value for moral content, which mm-hmm. is just extremely confusing. And it's just, but it, it's the same thing with machinery where people get wrapped up in this idea. And we see it in, in all our history books, every single one of them. It's all like, and then we invented, you know, the steam engine and now everything's good.
2: Yeah, yeah. You're watching old documentaries and they're like, and then we figured out nuclear power. And there's like two seconds of I am become death destroyer of worlds. And then they (laughs) show like a happy family in front of a white picket fence. And they're like, Sally got a new bike.
0: (laughs) Right, right. There's no discussion of the downstream effects. There's no discussion of how the machines are used. Because that's the thing. It's that detaching of the social Mm -hmm. context without which you really can't understand what's going on. Right,
1: right, well, and, and he's this- really pushing for like a materialist analysis of mm-hmm. what's actually going on. We must understand the machine. I mm-hmm. mean, it's right. Th- I mean, it seems pretty apparent that there is a very much so like an anti-idealistic uh, mm-hmm. bent to this sort of analysis.
2: Right, well, he's he's basically saying, like, look these sciences that we're developing, because this is the 50s, like, science is exploding right, right now right. compared to what we knew before, and he's saying, look, these are all tools, and you have to be c- uh, careful when you use a tool, especially if it's very powerful. He's, like, looking at nuclear physics, and he's like, this is, like, the equivalent of just n- having never seen a chainsaw before and immediately trying to juggle it, like, it's it's deranged. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it's, you know, it's like handing a child a loaded gun.
2: <laughs> it's, it's very much. Much like handing a child a loaded <laughs> gun, a metaphor I hope we will get a lot of use out of. Uh- <laughs> So in order to kind of give some background to why Wiener might have thought this way, uh, I just want to go over his biography really quick. And when I say really quick, I mean I had trouble cutting things because he's a fascinating person. (laughs) So uh, Norbert Wiener was a bit of a boy wonder back in his day. He was the first child of Leo Wiener and Bertha Kahn, who were Jewish immigrants from Lithuania and Germany, respectively. His father was the very first professor of Slavic languages in the entire United States, and he lectured and later held tenure at Harvard University. Through his father, Norbert was related to Maimonides, the famous rabbi, philosopher, and physician from Al-Andalus, as well as to Akiva Eiger, chief rabbi of Posen from 1815 to 1837, and a landmark figure in the history of European Judaism. His father, Leo Wiener, was also notable for having studied at the Wilhelm Friedrich University in Berlin, named after one Hegel, you might know, uh, and for leaving Europe originally with a Plan to start a vegetarian commune in modern Belize, which was then British Honduras. So, um, utopian ideals seem to run in the family.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that whole period of like late nineteenth century, very, very early twentieth century, mm-hmm. like just the, for in the first few years, that period where you have all of these European like intellectuals moving to like Latin America to set up these communes is so strange to me (laughs) like that's what because you have you know of course you have like the the volkish ones from from germany where Mm -hmm. it's like oh uh, yeah this is like this is just a racist cult but like but there's also a lot of these utopian ones yeah there's where it's like based on vegetarianism and stuff and it's just like it's it's really interesting i guess it's kind of part of the fallout of like the failure of the 1848 revolutions Mm-hmm. And, and just being like, all right, we have to, we have to travel to the new world. You know that the same sort of like settler impulse, but it's, it's, but so much later. It, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's so weird.
2: I, I love to to crawl off of a boat in the Bahamas, riddled with scurvy, and get into a fight with a fourierist because I am a strict Saint Simonian, <laughs> <laughs> right, and
0: just refusing to learn the language of the people who actually live there.
2: Exactly, exactly. So he was one of those bohemians. Uh, Bohemian European intellectuals who came to the New World attempting to do whatever that was, in the words of Marx and Engels. Uh, (laughs) He was reputed to speak as many as 30 languages, so his father was also obviously quite well-educated and published over a dozen books, and he took an extremely active interest in the education of his young son. So Norbert graduated from Ayer High School in 1906 and received his uh, bachelor's in mathematics from Tufts College in 1909 at just 14 years of age. He then went... I know. It's kind of <laughs> impressive. <laughs> I mean, when your dad's a Harvard professor who speaks thirty languages, excellence is expected. But fourteen, yeah. Jesus! Yeah. Um, he then proceeded to go I on can to study. Do,
0: like- I don't even know if I, I, like, I could barely do algebra at 14.
2: <laughs> yeah, no. I, I remember being like 15, I think, and, and seeing pre-calc and being like, yeah, I'm never learning that. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Norbert then went on to study zoology at Harvard. As this series goes on, you'll notice a lot of these folks studied zoology. I don't mm. know if that's hyper relevant. It just seems to be the case. Um, So he he studied zoology at Harvard before turning to Cornell in pursuit of philosophy studies. Harvard then awarded him a Ph.D. in June of 1913, when he was only 19 years of age, for a dissertation on mathematical logic, which was a comparison of the works of Ernst Schroeder with that of Alfred North Whitehead, famous process philosopher, and Bertrand Russell, famous father of analytic philosophy in general. Before setting about immediately contributing ideas to set theory that are still used routinely today. If anybody is familiar with set theory, you will have seen Wiener's name in front of a bunch of functions and variables and fields and all kinds of other things because in addition to doing stuff that I care about, he did a bunch of boring, dusty old math shit as well.
1: Uh. <laughs> I think maybe maybe the zoology thing is that like when studying animals, you also have to study environments and the ways mm-hmm. in which they exist in a habitat together. It's similar to like like the v- complexities of like farming or gardening you know there's so many different factors to, to be taken into consideration when right. it is about you know raising these animals or how these animals raise each other how these systems interact during times of catastrophe and what ways in which they come back and adapt you know burning forests revitalizing in in kind of miraculous ways there's so many different things to learn in that which are really complex systems that are just like inherent to nature that we can just observe um and and almost emulate in certain ways but you know we very often fail to do that it's very Mm -hmm. it's like the the permaculture thing and they have these principles but sometimes they're wrong because they just they just like had this idea and said hey i've got this great idea and then uh you know they they claim to be like mimicking nature but in reality it's just like a perceived version of mimicking Mm -hmm. nature and it's not an actual like emulation of the system necessarily
2: right yeah i mean it's really hard to get like a one-to-one thing going especially when people are overconfident in trying to jump in and and interact with a system that's like massively complex like uh, if you're an individual trying to interact with your natural surroundings um, you know, maybe you come from a, a background where you have the tools and resources to do that, but if you don't, it's the equivalent of like the nine-year-old kid in the house opening up the boot menu on the family computer and just fucking around with the bio settings. Like you are going to <laughs> break something straight up. <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: or, or the older version of the, the, the kid who takes apart the VCR and then mm-hmm. you know, most kids then like try for five seconds to put it back together, fail, get bored, and go do something else. In this case, I imagine Wiener would like put it back together, and it would somehow also be a mini disc player. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> probably.
1: I always probably. liked doing that as a kid. I took lots of stuff apart and made. I I would buy like broken DVD players at rummage sales and get them to work.
2: Well, then you 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 may have cybernetic impulses. <laughs> I'm here to tell you. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, after contributing to mathematics, he got bored and decided to do more philosophy. So in 1914, Wiener traveled to Europe to be taught by the very same Bertrand Russell that he wrote his dissertation on, as well as Edmund Husserl, among many others. He was also briefly a journalist uh, during this era. The, these events, is kind of hard to get a, a concrete chronology, but he was also briefly a journalist for the Boston Herald, where he wrote a feature story on the poor labor conditions for mill workers in Lawrence, Massachusetts but he was fired soon afterwards for his reluctance to write favorable articles about a politician that the newspaper's owners sought to promote that is my favorite <laughs> story about him and i, like I am this. trying so hard to find the article it i don't know if i will find
0: <laughs> that does rock but as a history pedant i have to ask that timing of his trip to europe is a. Uh rather auspicious yeah. since he's apparently studying from two professors whose countries are about to go to war with each other yeah. <laughs> cuz like Husserl was teaching in Berlin I think so
2: yes i believe so <laughs> just um, showing
0: up at europe in 1914 learning from Bertrand Russell learning from Edmund Husserl and then like coming back to america and picking up a newspaper and be like oh
2: hey there's a war on yeah well that's the thing is like the 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 resources that I found on it are like, yeah, he traveled to London. He also spent time in Paris and Berlin and Antwerp. And I'm like, he, he got around a lot for a, a continent in turmoil like that. Like, <laughs> yeah.
0: and He's only 20.
2: Like yeah. I was surprised,
0: like none of them tried to like draft him or something.
2: <laughs> he must've been a very confident young man. So, yeah. <laughs> um, he, he did uh, around this time when in his early twenties decide to become a staunch pacifist. But when the war kicked off, This is the First World War. He decided that he was going to attempt to contribute to the war effort anyway. So first off, he tried to enter the army as an officer and he was rejected twice. First for not being suitable as an officer, whatever that means. I could not find clarification. And once for having poor eyesight. Afterward,
0: Eh, I'm going to be honest. I think if you get rejected as not being suitable for an officer, that probably speaks well of you.
2: (laughs) It's a compliment. Yeah. They (laughs) were like, he's not going to take direction well. Uh, We saw his
1: labor article. This is not our guy.
2: This guy's
0: not going to blindly order men into a machine gun uh, hail of bullets. Like, come on.
2: And, and that's all stuff that the army very well may have known about him because there seemed to be several indicators that uh, there were various... Agencies keeping tabs on him throughout his life uh, mm. for reasons we will get to shortly. But um, after he was rejected twice as an officer, he was invited by Oswald Veblen to work on ballistics at the Aberdeen Proving Ground in Maryland. However, uh, he was still eager to serve in uniform and decided to make one more attempt to enlist, this time as a common soldier. He wrote in a letter to his parents, quote, I should consider myself a pretty cheap kind of a swine if I were willing to be an officer, but unwilling to be a soldier, which is like, I would never join the army, but that's badass.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also like a pretty cheap kind of a swine. Is that good? a good? It's a good turn of phrase.
2: Uh, the army did accept him into its ranks uh, when he applied as a soldier and assigned him by coincidence to a unit stationed at Aberdeen, Maryland, where he was going anyway. World War I ended just days after he returned to Aberdeen and he was discharged from the military in February of 1919. He then applied to get a permanent position at Harvard, but was denied due to what he perceived as anti-Semitism. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say he was correct.
0: Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think that's a pretty, pretty safe, uh, <laughs> safe assessment there that he was correct.
2: Yeah. And then apparently he also tried to get a teaching position at the University of Melbourne, but was denied for unspecified reasons um, that I just haven't like, been able to find anything about. That, like Melbourne, really. Australia. Yes. Like he wanted. He was like, I'll just move to Australia. Guess Harvard does not like me for being Jewish. Maybe the Aussies will, I'll favor better there. Who knows? Mm. It was a weird time. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately,
0: and, uh, uh, Anglo-Antisemitism, I think, is pretty universal around uh, yeah. <laughs> the various dominions.
2: I was watching a, thing re- a food travel blog thing recently, and one of the guys said, I'm pretty sure anywhere you can buy a can of Coke, there's some kind of racism going on. And I think that's yeah. very astute. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So... Um, Having been rejected from both of these universities, he did eventually get a teaching position at MIT, recommended to him by W.F. Osgood, which he eventually turned into a full professorship and maintained for the rest of his life. In 1926, he again returned to Europe as a Guggenheim scholar. He spent most of his time at Göttingen and at Cambridge working on Brownian motion, the Fourier integral. Dirichlet's problem, harmonic analysis, and the Talberian theorems, which are five things that I do not know what they are. I was about to
1: say, I know <laughs> what harmonic analysis is, but maybe not even in this context.
2: Yeah, maybe not. Hard to say. <laughs> yeah. I kind of know what Brownian motion is. It's like yeah. the arrangement of semi-random particles in a space, particularly gases, but yeah, it's it's, all I it's how the
0: It's how the particles in uh, fluids interact due to just fluids. collisions between the particles. Although... That has to get even more confusing than it already sounds when you start taking into account the quantum nature of the particles in there. And so it's actually studying that in 1926, like I think, uh, like that would be a really interesting time to be in that field. Yeah. Do
1: you know well, what it's any interesting. Of these
0: other things are, Dan?
2: <laughs> uh, he also that's, tell it, me what Dirac's problem is right now, or I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> well, because he was
0: doing this in in Europe, I'm really curious if he had any encounters with like working with like Niels Bohr or anything, because oh, he was yeah. working on stuff like that. Like I think around the same time, uh, it would be really cool to know if they work together. It's I, certainly I mean, for, possible. Furrier integrals are pretty commonly used in like advanced math.
2: Um, in in fact, I think I was looking through the Wiener I think. archives. I might be I was looking through the Norbert Wiener archives and they did have a a long list of letters that he sent to various people that I was just kind of thumbing through. If I remember correctly, there was one to Niels Bohr, but I don't have that offhand.
1: I think I have to say this for the listener's sake. Uh, You know, these constantly using his last name for all these, the Wiener's archives sounds like a dick pic catalog. (laughs) It does.
2: And, And I debated saying Wiener because that's how some people have referred to him. But I've listened to audio of him talking from the 50s. He calls himself Norbert Wiener in a normal American accent. I'm rolling with it.
0: Yeah, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
2: (laughs) So in general, Wiener was the archetypal absent-minded professor. And the more I learn about him, and, and how well-known he was at the time for his accomplishments. The more I think he might actually literally be the inspiration for that character <laughs> yeah. archetype in American media. So keep, keep that in your back pocket. Uh, it was said about him that he once returned home to find his house empty. He inquired of a neighborhood girl the reason, and she said that the family had moved elsewhere that day. He thanked her for the information, and she replied, "'That's why I stayed behind, Daddy.'" Of course, this sounds absurd, but when his daughter was asked about the story, she reportedly asserted that he never forgot who his children were. The rest of it, however, was pretty close to what actually happened. (laughs) Imagine being so engrossed in your work that you forgot you were moving house. (laughs) Wow.
0: Oh, man. That's so funny.
2: Yes. So um, perhaps what he's best well known for in the American canon is that during World War II, his work on the automatic aiming and firing of anti-aircraft guns caused Wiener to investigate information theory at the time independently of Claude Shannon, although he would later meet Shannon and they would work together. And he also invented the Wiener filter, which is not for hot dogs. It is a, quote, <laughs> filter used to produce an estimate of a desired or target random process by linear time in variant filtering of an observed noisy process assuming known stationary signal and noise spectra and additive noise and if that doesn't make any sense to you that's fine you could just block it out Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and this anti-aircraft work that
0: doesn't even make sense to me and i have a degree in engineering
2: (laughs) see this is what i'm fucking talking about the wonders of super science Uh, (laughs) so this anti-aircraft work that he was working on the automatic targeting and firing of these weapons was what would eventually coalesce into the foundation of cybernetics, which he helped develop alongside early robotics, early computer control, automation, information theory, and and various other fields that he contributed to. One of the things that was notable about him and one of the things that sparked the ire of the U.S. government is that Wiener was very open about sharing his theories and research findings with other researchers, and he always credited the contributions of others. These included Soviet researchers and their findings, who were doing great work at the time, which Norbert recognized.
0: Um, But you're not supposed to recognize that.
2: No, (laughs) it's really not cool to say, hey, I think these guys actually might make it to space.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, and also like crediting people. That's that's a no go. It's one person whose name goes on the paper and they get all the credit. Everybody else fucks off and you know, just is thankful for the paycheck they got.
2: Signing my John Hancock at the bottom of the research paper like I'm the CEO of research like <laughs> 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 Norbert very much hated that uh, mentality and he, and he saw it, you know, immer- here's the thing, like when when we look at the way that science and science journalism and all this kind of like th- the doxa of science is distributed around the world. The fact that like, it's all corporatized and fucked up feels very like, it feels bad, but it feels like what we're used to. Like, it feels like, of course it's that way. This is the fucked up world. But well, and- f- for Weiner, this was just emerging as, as a characteristic of scientific study because like corporations up until this point hadn't given that much of a shit about science.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's one of those things that like, again i think intersects with the marxist analysis of society really mm-hmm. well because like the whole concept of intellectual property like is is it's reified for us because of how important it is to the functioning of modern especially american capitalism and how useful it is as a tool of the ruling class to preserve profitability beyond the normal period on which you could have exclusive control of a specific type of technology, um, as well as a weapon uh, to uh, suppress the development of foreign competition. Mm -hmm. But when you take a step back and think about it, it's like, oh, so we have, you know, what, eight billion people on the earth, all with, you know, incredible potential to contribute to the cause of greater humanity, but because of money, (laughs) we need to make sure that if this person over here in, you know, France comes up with an incredible new invention that we don't share that with everybody. Mm -hmm. So everybody can use it and all of humanity can benefit. No, that would be bad. That would actually be catastrophic because then how would we get really rich off of it? Yeah, right it, or it,
1: even recognizing you know the the merit of you know communists and their fantastic work well that's a that's against our system they're bad so they can never do anything good
0: that's right
2: yeah well, and it's, it's also funny, too, because, like, um, there are anecdotes that you'll hear from, from people who talk about cybernetics history where they're like, uh, you know, Norbert Wiener would get letters from researchers at, you know, uh, research facility A asking, like, hey, I, I need some help with this problem with this metal doesn't respond right to this other kind of heat or metal or whatever. And Wiener would reply back. He's like, the folks over at Laboratory B have done excellent research on this. You should simply ask them. <laughs> and that's and like be, totally be, antithetical to the corporate ethos of America. <laughs> yeah, they're like, no, what do you do? Yeah,
0: because yeah, because I mean, like the example would be, I think, for people to get the idea, it'd be like, you know, he gets a call from somebody at at you know Ford, and mm-hmm. they're like, oh, I'm trying to. It, I'll just take this from the uh the plot of a recent movie. I'm developing a catalytic converter, so we can have like clean. Cars, it's going to be great and it's, it's going to save the environment and we'll be able to, you know, sell it as a marketable thing. But I can't quite figure it out. And he's like, oh, yeah, the folks at Chevy are doing that great. You should work with them. On it. <laughs> and so, of course, you know, we hear that we're like, that's ludicrous. But then again, you take that step back and be like, well, wait, why is it ludicrous? Like, why do we think that's a ridiculous thing? It, sh- shouldn't they work together?
2: <laughs> hmm. Yeah, well, and he really just wanted to see the standard of, of technology progressing uh, go hand in hand with the standard of living for, mm-hmm. for everybody who interacted with technology, which is everybody. You know, even if your technology is rather primitive, even if you don't have, you know, cars or phones or, or what have you, you, you are doing something with tools, even if those tools are words or ideas or, or social relations or whatever they are. Or so
0: a, an axe or a hoe <laughs> exactly.
2: So so Norbert Wiener was a strong advocate of automation, and he wanted to use it to improve the general standard of living. He really this was you know um, he had real Jetsons brain. We can put it that way, and he wanted to end economic underdevelopment. And which, though he stayed carefully away from explicitly Marxist language, sometimes it's painful reading him because there's like you're like, Wiener, there's a word for that. And I know, (laughs) you know, the word for that. (laughs) Just right. Means of production. Just right. Relations of production. He can't do it. So (laughs) but these things all put him under further suspicion from the government who had already been fairly suspicious of him for some time. His ideas during this same era became influential in India, which he moved to for a while to advise their government during the mid-1950s under Jawaharlal Nehru, who was favorable to Wiener's quasi-socialist ideas and skeptical of becoming aligned with either the United States or the Soviet Union. So, um, you know... I'm sure Wiener had many friends among the non aligned movement. It was just him and <laughs> Tito, bro, down all day. Uh, that's, that's right. Uh, me and Nasser, this is our beach vacation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then after the war, Wiener became increasingly concerned with what he believed was political interference in scientific research and the militarization of science. And I say, What he believed, even though that is definitely what was happening. He wrote an article called A Scientist Rebels, which was from the January 1947 issue of the Atlantic Monthly, which urged scientists to consider the ethical implications of their work. And I'm going to read out the text from the letter from the Atlantic, along with the little blurb that the Atlantic put at the beginning. Also, why is every newspaper in the country a billion years old? Uh, (laughs) So um, The Atlantic says, the letter which follows was addressed by one of our ranking mathematicians to a research scientist of a great aircraft corporation who had asked him for the technical account of a certain line of research he had conducted in the war. Professor Wiener's indignation at being requested to participate in indiscriminate rearmament less than two years after victory is typical of many American scientists who served their country faithfully during the war. Before we get into what Weiner wrote, isn't that incredible? That a couple of years after the war, right. most American scientists were like, rearmament? Fuck you. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs>
0: Meanwhile, today, something like 80% of all uh, research in the American Academy is funded by DOD.
2: Yep. And the very same, it's like if you want to become an engineer, it's like one of the best bets to doing that is to join the army. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: You can definitely, yeah, for sure. you can make your name if if that's what you want to do. Um, but yeah, so, so, Weiner writes, Sir, I have received from you a note in which you state that you are engaged in a project concerning controlled missiles, and in which you request a copy of a paper which I wrote for the National Defense Research Committee during the war. As the paper is the property of a government organization, you are, of course, at complete liberty to turn to that government organization for such information as I could give you. If it is out of print, as you say, and they desire to make it available for you, there are doubtless proper avenues of approach to them. When, However, you turn to me for information concerning controlled missiles. There are several considerations which determine my reply. I love his tone here. (laughs) In the past, the comedy of scholars has made it a custom to furnish scientific information to any person seriously seeking it. However, we must face these facts. The policy of the government itself during and after the war, say in the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, has made it clear that to provide scientific information is not a necessarily innocent act and may entail the gravest consequences. One therefore cannot escape reconsidering the established custom of the scientist to give information to every person who may inquire of him. The interchange of ideas, which is one of the great traditions of science, must of course receive certain limitations when the scientist becomes an arbiter of life and death." For the sake, however, of the scientist and the public, these limitations should be as intelligent as possible. The measures taken during the war by our military agencies in restricting the free intercourse among scientists on related projects or even on the same projects have gone so far that it is clear that if continued in time of peace, this policy will lead to the total irresponsibility of the scientist and ultimately to the death of science." Both of these are disastrous for our civilization and entail grave and immediate peril for the public." I realize, of course, that I am acting as the censor of my own ideas, and it may sound arbitrary, but I will not accept a censorship in which I do not participate. The experience of the scientists who have worked on the atomic bomb has indicated that in any investigation of this kind, the scientist ends by putting unlimited powers in the hands of the people whom he is least inclined to trust with their use. It is perfectly clear also that to disseminate information about a weapon in the present state of our civilization is to make it Practically certain that that weapon will be used. In that respect, the controlled missile represents the still imperfect supplement to the atom bomb and to bacterial warfare. The practical use of guided missiles can only be to kill foreign civilians indiscriminately, and it furnishes no protection whatsoever to civilians in this country. I cannot conceive a situation in which such weapons can produce any effect other than extending the kamikaze way of fighting to whole nations. Their possession can do nothing but endanger us by encouraging the tragic insolence of the military mind." If, therefore, I do not desire to participate in the bombing or poisoning of defenseless peoples, and I most certainly do not... I must take a serious responsibility as to those to whom I disclose my scientific ideas. Since it is obvious that with sufficient effort you can obtain my material, even though it is out of print, I can only protest pro forma in refusing to give you any information concerning my past work. However, I rejoice at the fact that my material is not readily available inasmuch (laughs) as it gives me the opportunity to raise this serious moral issue. I do not expect to publish any future work of mine, which may do damage in the hands of irresistible responsible militarists i am taking the liberty of calling this letter to the attention of other people in scientific work i believe it is only proper that they should know of it in order to make their own independent decisions if similar situations should confront them norbert wiener
0: man norbert my man after my own heart here (laughs) (laughs) like oh man there is there's so much going on in
2: there yeah I mean it's it's really remarkable to me that like you see from a very young age he he starts making like decisions about the way that all of his various systems in his life are going to interact with the world. Like I'm a pacifist. Okay. I'm going to try to join the army actually. Okay. I, they, they wouldn't take me. So I'm, I'm going to try and work in these other, fields. oh, they will take me. Okay. And you know, now I'm, and he, he keeps, he keeps setting himself up and he's, he's trying to, to, to reorient himself based on all the newest information and say like, what is the most correct thing to do with what I have available?
0: Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that like really speaks to his favor in this case is that you can see the deep thought here because he's simultaneously making a very staunch declaration of principles, mm-hmm. like a, 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 a true dedication to the idea that information wants to be free, that science is the property of all of humanity and not just one person, one nation, one company, uh, anything like that. But also at the same time recognizing that he can't practice that principle in a dogmatic manner because, again, as he points out here so many times, he's like, look, I, I, I think we should share information. But as experience has taught him, like if you treat that dogmatically, you can end up supporting horrific uh, crimes mm-hmm. as with – working with the defense industry and so the the champion of scientific freedom and total liberation of knowledge is forced by the historically contingent situation he is in to restrict the sharing of his own scientific knowledge so as not to further the awful militarist ends of the empire he finds himself living
2: in sure well and i love that you use the word dogma and dogmatic because that really is what he's trying to work his way out of and express to people that like you know once you get into these set ways of thinking if you follow them to their quote unquote logical conclusion you're almost always end up doing something insane by the time you get there and it's also interesting because like you know he he would use the term rigidity a lot he was always railing against the rigidity of any given system and um i i think it's interesting that he chose that word because it's very very neutral right like dogma That's a little Marxist. That's a little loaded. That's a little (laughs) theological. That's a little historically informed. But rigidity is something that you can, it's very dry. It's very, it's a very technical term. It's a very technical term. And I think that that's how he kind of skated through a lot of his academic and professional commitments in the United States, despite obviously having at least semi-socialist ideological commitments. Right. And also he expresses an interesting materialism in this where he's like, mm-hmm. I'm just protesting pro forma. I'm sure if you really try, you can go get my work from somewhere. Like,
0: <laughs> Well, yeah, I love that he like he won't even puff up his own protest. Mm-hmm. He's like, look, I know you can go get it, but you know what? I'm not going to be a party to this. So mm-hmm. uh, as much as I can, screw you, good sir. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I
2: rejoice that my work is not readily yeah. available.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that shit rocks. And, and he cuts right through, because you know I used to work in the defense industry before I radicalized, and some of the... So I've gone through and heard every single justification argument for why that's not wrong, tried a lot of them myself for a while. Uh, but one of the ones that's really common is this idea that technology itself is purely neutral and that it is only the end user who has the total responsibility for it. And it's like, that's not true. Yeah, (laughs) Like as Wiener like lays out here, it's like, yes, if somebody, you know, makes a drug that's supposed to cure, you know, a heart disease, and then 10 years later, somebody figures out they can turn it into a biological weapon. No, that's not that person's fault. But if, you work for Raytheon and you are designing missiles, the fact that you don't press the button doesn't mean you don't know full well what the purpose of the thing that you're working on is for right and is like he lays out there the practical use of guided missiles can only be to kill foreign civilians indiscriminately, which is absolutely correct but you'll hear from people with huge amounts of education all of these high minded like Detached, objective in mm-hmm. the biggest quotes in the world conceptions that look, I'm just designing a machine. I'm not the one using the machine. This this attempt to absolve themselves of any responsibility for something they know very well what it's gonna be used for.
2: Well, and that's what that's I love that you use the word objective, because that is something that people always claim to be when they're trying to justify something fucking awful. And one of the things that I really love about uh, Wiener's mindset is he 's relentlessly subjective he 's like he, he mm-hmm. doesn 't ever try to take an objective stance from anything he 's always looking at the intersubjectivities of things as they relate to one another and it's it 's like a prefiguration of the kind of systems theory idea that like anything that regulates a system is part of the system there is no outside if you are interacting with a system you 're in it you 're a subject you are mm-hmm. a part. Uh, of that system and that means that in a very specific way determined by the relations of the system you are now part of decision and control within the system and and so being clear about the dimensions that those kinds of things take and understanding that like, okay, just the same way that decision is diffuse, responsibility is also diffuse. One person doesn't cook up a guided missile in their garage and go to another country and kill innocent civilians with it. There has to be a whole system of human beings and other things that are party to that. And that's worth examining.
0: Yeah, I mean it's 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 really impressive because like this is such a good illustration I think and you can apply this to a lot of different fields but mm-hmm. um I think this is like the best one in like the STEM world um there's a there's a big parallel in the study of economics uh, as well but of when you get these people who they may be in the most anti-communist most pro-capitalist society they may have all the of the various apparatuses working on them they even even inculcating fully to the point where they accept it bourgeois ideology i'm not putting Wiener in that category but just as a general concept but if you really want, if you start zooming out enough, and you really want to study a sufficiently broad system, you are forced to think in a, at least somewhat dialectical manner, because mm-hmm. otherwise you're not going to understand what you're looking at, and in you it's all over like Wiener's like way of thinking that that it's like this this deep understanding that no, these things are not separate from each other. They are all intimately linked. And if we don't understand them all, not only in their constituent parts, mm-hmm. which is the way Western science is usually set up. It's like, we look at this part and we look at this part and we look at this part. And he's like, no, if you don't look at them simultaneously at how they interact, you're, you're not going to be able to predict how that system is actually going to function.
2: Right. Well, and it's interesting because you know, a lot of people have, have trouble with dialectics understandably it's obtuse it comes from continental philosophy and marxism it's loaded with insane words but they're like i don't trained
0: to think the opposite way of
2: it yeah well and also yeah we're conditioned to think of everything in in synthesis terms to the point where when we think of dialectics we often think of synthesis which is not dialectics it's the fucking opposite pretty close (laughs) um dialectics is two into one or one into two fuck i can't even get it right now um (laughs) (laughs) dialectics is fucking one into two. Synthesis is two into one. But... Wiener is very interested in feedback systems because these feedback systems are what allow something based on previous experience to adjust and move towards a new goal and so I think it's really informative like if you're like I don't get this base and superstructure stuff what does it mean when it's overdetermined? what the heck is it what does it mean when it's the principal contradiction it's like it's really simple it's a feedback system you have your base it's sending signals into the superstructure which are getting reinterpreted interpreted by the superstructure and then are being sent back down into the base. They're not going to overturn the whole base all at once, but the base is feeding itself translated systems through the superstructure the same way that if you hold a microphone up to a speaker, it starts to go ee- <laughs> and it produces a tone. So, you know, it's it, sometimes having a mechanical example of something is helpful. And, you know, if, if, thinking about uh you know dialectics in terms of a flywheel or whatever helps you get it then you know cool um that's kind of what cybernetics is all about really uh
1: (laughs) i bet everybody's gonna feel a lot smarter after listening to this episode
2: i really hope so i hope this is making sense because like (laughs) i feel like i'm the piano teacher staying one lesson ahead of the student sometimes but uh, (laughs) 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 so anyway um after the war Weiner refused to accept any government funding—this uh, is after World War II—refused to accept any government funding or to work on military projects, standing in stark contrast to very comparable figures such as fellow multidisciplinary former child prodigy John von Neumann, who— Very unlike Wiener, openly advocated for Western nuclear preparedness throughout the Cold War and gleefully participated in technological projects that led to huge weapons advancements, spy technology advancements, anything to get the dirty reds and anybody else we don't like, uh in 1948 boo. I know boo John von Neumann you suck what's wrong with boo you boo
0: this man <laughs> <laughs> so in
2: 1948 uh, Wiener published his book cybernetics or control and communication in the animal and the machine which would then only a year later become the namesake of the meta discipline we are now discussing cybernetics this occurred at the last of the Macy conferences that Wiener was actually able to attend at the urging of Heinz von Furster in the the story is actually kind of interesting. So Von Forster had recently come to the US from Austria and had been given the duties of taking notes for the meetings in an attempt to improve his English skills, which were somewhat lacking at the time. And Von Forster objected to the quite lengthy names for the cybernetic discussion topics, which were filled with descriptors like feedback systems and information hierarchies and would often be anywhere from 7 to 10 words long. Uh, So he asked, why don't we simply use the term cybernetics from Wiener's recent book? And when the group agreed, Wiener was so moved at the suggestion to use the title of his book to christen this field of study that he actually had to excuse himself so as not to be seen crying, which I think is really sweet. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And so if you're wondering what these Macy conferences are... They're pretty interesting. So, strictly speaking, uh, they were a series of conferences held over a period of 19 years, from 1941 to 1960, mostly in New York, but some of them were on various college campuses. Uh, under the direction of frank fremont smith at the josiah macy jr foundation and they were principally designed to break down boundaries between various rapidly developing fields at that time the middle of the century was a huge time for scientific advancement as we had mentioned and this was particularly meant to alleviate the isolation that medical research had found itself in and the stagnation that had been noticed in medical research at that time So they were held across many different technical specializations uh, where leaders of various research fields would all come together and cross-pollinate. And the aim was to develop new and interesting theories that were not bound to any one specific field like chemistry, physics, management, you know, whatever, uh, computing, logistics, medicine, and so on. And the format of presentations was set up so that they would have lectures on a wide range of topics and then each lecture would be followed by a discussion that was specifically encouraged like they had people who were in the crowd and were meant specifically to make sure the conversation never narrowed to one field and always remained something that people from different disciplines could chime in on uh which is pretty interesting. And so Wiener, as we talked about, was a participant of some of the earlier Macy conferences, which focused on what would eventually be called cybernetics. And these conferences were the place where Wiener would encounter either in person or through contacts, through word of mouth, such other notable figures as W. Ross Ashby and Stafford Beer, who we will also cover in this series, as well as many other persons of note, such as anthropologist Margaret, highly controversial anthropologist Margaret Mead, neurophysiologist Warren McCullough, and the the infamous mathematician and information theory pioneer, Claude Shannon, who we also mentioned closer to the beginning of the episode. Now, only 10 of these conferences were actually focused on cybernetics. These cybernetics conferences took place at various times from 46 to 53. And when we refer to the Macy conferences going forward, we're going to be borrowing the vernacular of various cyberneticians who, perhaps somewhat arrogantly, just say macy conferences and they only mean the 10 cybernetics ones the other 150 conferences who gives a rat's ass um <laughs> that
0: doesn't which is, seem like a very cybernetic way to think about it
2: <laughs> you're telling me <laughs> it's so <laughs> weird they're like medicine we don't care about fucking medicine <laughs> uh <laughs> And, uh, so, so when we say Macy conferences, uh, during the cybernetics series, at least, I don't know when else I would say them. We mean the cybernetics conferences, um, So yeah, I, that basically gets you up to speed on Norbert Wiener's life and basic kind of like ideological dispositions and, and, and predilections. And, um, I'm really excited to continue with this. You might've thought we were done. We're not. He wrote a really (laughs) wonderful letter to the UAW and Walter Ruther that we are going to read on the next episode. Um, but before I plug everything in the world, Is there anything either of my co-hosts wanted to comment or ask a question about relevant to the stuff we talked about today?
0: I, you know, uh, this is like perhaps the only still evil, but perhaps for good use way to use AI to resurrect the dead. Um, (laughs) I would be fascinated to see his response to COVID because it's it's the sort of thing that it's like where it requires a full state like all of state response it it, because it's it's like it's one of those things like a a pandemic on a global scale like that like that works you know of course still dealing with because of of capitalism's inability to function in a manner necessary to respond Mm -hmm. to such a crisis uh but because you mentioned you know them just being like well those were conferences about medicine and i know you were just throwing that out there as a as a random option but like there were, I feel like there were so many discussions where the people would be like, well, really COVID is, and especially as we've, we've seen the state abandon it's even pitiful mm-hmm. minor response where we see, well, really, it's a problem of ventilation, it, you know, anything to never mask again. And they're like, we really, we just need to put all this money into ventilation and then we can just live with COVID and, and it. And through different periods of the pandemic, there were other, I feel like, responses to that, too, where they're like, we just need the vaccine. So everything is about the new mRNA technology. That's going to save us on its own, and we don't need anything else. There's nothing else. It's the one thing. It's this obsession that there's some way that you can have a silver bullet when Mm -hmm. it's like, no, it's – we do not have a magic sterilizing vaccine that fell from the sky to, to to eliminate the disease. And so we have to deal with it on a whole of society basis, which means that we do need ventilation and we do need to pour, you know, resources into developing vaccines. But we also need all sorts of other social, like, changes and all, like... <laughs> You know, all the uh, stuff that is talked about every week on the death panel. I, I, could, like, just,
2: I could just imagine paying like $6 billion to, to neuro-model the brain of uh, Norbert Wiener and bring him back and be like, Norbert, how do we handle this COVID shit? Just for him to be like, you should call China
0: right. and coordinate with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, because that's the thing. It's like, it, you know, you can critique bits around the edges here or there, but it's like where you have a society where the state – is set up for public good, mm-hmm. not for you know, control and domination by a tiny ruling class. You're actually able to devote a whole of society approach to it, right. and have we come up with the perfect response to that? Even in socialist societies, no. Well, but it like if you compare that to the capitalist response, it's like a whole different century.
2: Per- perfect response, fucking aside, have a fucking response. The, right. the capitalist West doesn't even have a feedback system. We literally mm-hmm. don't even know how to recognize an epidemic. We literally cannot see it, even when we know it's there. Like that's the thing. Like you <laughs> you know, say what you will about China's response to COVID, but they were structurally capable of identifying a problem, developing a plan, and following the plan through. Was it the best plan in the world? I have no fucking idea. They did something. The United mm-hmm. States did fucking nothing. When we did eventually realize, when, when, when the amount of variety that COVID introduced into the system, when it produced a state that, that the, the management of the system of the United States was not prepared for, it was not in their model, they eventually broke down and started handing shit out, doing the Mm -hmm. obvious things. But doing the obvious things when you're backed into a corner is not a plan. (laughs) Right.
0: Right. right. Like, understanding the feedback loop would be like, oh, we now recognize we have now had many data points Mm -hmm. of airborne respiratory pandemics. SARS, MERS, now Mm SARS-2, (laughs) COVID-19. It's like, perhaps... The piece of data we should be taking from this feedback we're getting is that hmm, maybe masks are something we should always have in healthcare settings because we have now perhaps been able to learn (laughs) from the past, but not under capitalism because that's a problem for the ruling class. They don't want that. And so it's just, nope, pour money into the ideological state apparatus to convince everybody it's gone. <laughs> and go back to normal.
2: Well, and also, you know, the, the US uh healthcare system, even outside of the critiques that we would always love to lobby against it, uh there's also a very, you know, Wienerian critique to be had there, which is that it's terribly rigid. It is not flexible at all. It cannot respond to a new state at all. How long has every hospital bed been full? Like years, like fucking years of no hospital beds. If you had a system that had any kind of feedback system at all, you would have nine times as many hospital beds available two months into a pandemic. Mm-hmm. But you don't because it's not even that our system is broken. It's that our system was, it is a purpose built system and keeping people alive is not its purpose.
0: Right, exactly. Exactly. Wow, we're I mean, already like foreshadowing the Stafford Beer episode. It's hard yeah. not to. <laughs> I'm very excited
1: for this. I I think that the one thing that's become difficult, or that's a little difficult for me, is I don't know any of these people's names. You say, uh, "Who who is this uh, problematic Margaret Mead? Uh, you know, who is this? Who is this, like I don't know like." Uh, Well, uh,
2: Margaret Mead, we can tackle right now, actually, because um, I'm not going to have time to do an episode on her. And also, she's not super relevant to labor. She was, um, well, I I shouldn't say that. She did a lot of important gender studies stuff as well. But she was also uh, an Anthropologist who studied th- the types of people that were p- produced by different social and anthropological systems, and that involved a lot of doing racism in the yeah, middle of say, the century. Yeah, it sounds kind of like
1: eugenics.
2: <laughs> it's it has a lot of uncomfortable overlap with eugenics, and she wrote. I mean, in the seventies, she she did co-author a book called A Rap on Race with James Baldwin, which I would be fascinated to read nothing but respect for James Baldwin but in in 1951 for instance she wrote a book called Soviet attitudes toward authority uh which was published by the Rand Corporation and <laughs> uh,
0: just as a as a tip for people if you're not aware uh the Rand Corporation is just the CIA. Yes, that's correct.
2: <laughs> and so in this they,
0: they, they're the ones who write all the plans to launch nuclear war.
2: Yeah. And so in this book, uh Mead posits that the traditional Russian character structure, we are already doing racism. Quote, developed <laughs> individuals prone to extreme swings and mood from exhilaration to depression. Hating confinement and authority and yet feeling that strong external authority was necessary to keep their own violent impulses in check. I'm sorry. That's American projection like I've (laughs) never seen in my life.
1: (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of other names in here that are probably a lot more interesting to, to get into. And I'm excited for some of the ones that we're going to get into in the future.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, they all have their problems. It was the middle of the century. But um, yeah, I I tried to... I mean, Heinz von Furster was an Austrian (laughs) (laughs) who showed up in the 50s. Yeah. Yeah. What's happening there? (laughs) (laughs) So... You know, they're not all great. And many of them did, you know, they didn't all have Wiener's ideological convictions. Many people who were interested in cybernetics were just interested in one aspect of it, like systems theory or interdisciplinary studies between something like, you know, physics and medicine or chemistry and, um, you know, biology or whatever. And they're they're not going to have the same kind of – Ethical and moral preoccupation that somebody like Weiner has, and 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 in fact, you know, despite having some pretty good political um, uh, considerations in their work, we're not going to see this same level of political dedication from Ashby or Beer going forward. Uh, Weiner is very much my special boy in terms of <laughs> in terms of being politically right as well as right about a bunch of other shit.
1: Yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. Well, uh, I think that this is going to be a really interesting series, and I am, again, very excited to get into it. But there's so much to cover. We're going to have to do it over a bunch of different episodes, so we're going to end this one for now and uh, be back with more next week. Um, And we want to thank all of the patrons who make this possible, because in order to have the time or even, you know, the money to, to... Order these books, you know, is yeah. one of the things that, that we have uh, been able to do because of your support. And we really appreciate it so much. So if you want to talk to us about this, jump in the Discord. And, uh, you know, also if you want to do a little bit more, write us a five star review somewhere. Follow us in all the places. The links are at worksdopagepod.com. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever
2: solidarity forever
0: solidarity everybody
2: i am oh, i rejoice that my work is not readily available <laughs> <laughs>